You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. As Bevan said, my name is Ethan. I'm the family pastor here at Seabreeze, and we're in this, decision, we're in this series called How to Make a Great Decision. We're defining a great decision this way. We've talked about this in each of the last three weeks. A, a great decision is a decision that lines up with God's will. So that's what we're shooting for, a decision that lines up with God's will. If you're a follower of Christ and you're looking at a decision that you're making in your life, that's your goal to shoot for, to understand God's will and then to make a decision that lines up with it. And so two weeks ago, what we did is we examined the environment required to make a great decision. We looked at the environment. We looked at how factors such as how we spend our time, how we structure our lives, how those are either going to add clarity or they're going to add confusion. The way that we do those things is going to make our decision-making process more clear or it's just going to make it kind of, kind of foggy. And then last week, we examined the motivation behind a great decision. We saw how actually what's in our hearts impacts the decisions that we make. Our heart impacts our decisions. Today, what we're going to do, we're going to shift gears, and we're going to look at the actual process of making a great decision. So I'm excited to jump into that. A tool that we've been using throughout this series is the decision-making train. And so uh, this is just a tool to help us remember God's ways of making a great decision. Uh, And so the, the, the tool is simply this. We have the engine. The engine of the train is prayer. That's what's pulling the train. Then after that is the coal car. The coal car is where God's word comes into play. That's the Bible. And then we have the passenger car. This is where we invite others to jump on board. This is wise counsel, the passenger car. And then we have the freight car. The freight car is circumstances, the circumstances surrounding that decision. And then finally, pulling up the rear, we've got the caboose. The caboose is the emotions. So we've looked at this a little bit in each of the past two weeks. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to drill down. We're going to look at each one of these different cars and see how they all fit together. But first, I want to clarify, when do we actually use this train? What kinds of decisions are we talking about where we would actually put this train into practice? Well, we use the decision-making train when we're facing complex decisions, when we're looking at complex decisions. The other day, I was driving in the, uh, in the car with my family, and I swerved into an in and out just kind of quickly into an in and out straight into the drive-thru. said, everybody get shakes, strawberry, chocolate, or vanilla. My kids had a very simple decision to make, strawberry, chocolate, or vanilla. This was not the time to deploy the decision-making train. I didn't need them back there praying this one through. I didn't need them out there phoning a friend, thinking, wise input, should I get strawberry, chocolate, or vanilla? What do you think? No, we were first in line. It was a rare thing. There's hardly ever no line in the in and out drive through We were right in the front. I just needed a decision. It was a simple decision. There are also times when I tell my kids to do something. I tell them to do something specific. So, for example, hold my hand as we walk through the parking lot. Let's say that we're in in and out and we're going inside to get shakes. Hold my hand as we walk through the parking lot. Again, There's no complex decision here for my kids to make. This is a very simple decision. Really, their only options are, in this situation, am I going to obey or am I going to disobey my dad? So similarly for us, we encounter all kinds of decisions that are of this chocolate, strawberry, vanilla variety. These are just kind of everyday decisions that we have to make that are very simple, non-moral decisions. Also, we face a lot of decisions where really our only choice is, are we going to obey or disobey? There's not 
a lot of complexity. Our, our decision is, will I obey or disobey? These are decisions where God's word has, clear, has clearly spoken. He's taken a strong stance. He's told us his will very clearly. We don't need to go searching for it. It's very clear. We know what it is. So, for example, Proverbs 20, verses 23, verse 23 says, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. So, this is a very straightforward verse out of the Bible. It's pretty clear. And it means for us that if I'm considering something that involves cheating or it involves deception, well, really my only choice is am I going to obey what God has said or am I going to disobey? Those are my options there. I don't need to bust out the decision-making train in this situation. But when we're facing complex decisions that have no clear right, no clear wrong answer from the Bible, that's when it's time to actually go through this process and go through the decision-making train. So that's what we're talking about. With that clarity, let's jump in and look at the first car in the decision-making train, and that's prayer, the engine, prayer. Now, recently, I was catching up with an old friend. I, um, I, I hadn't really connected, caught up with him in a couple years in a serious way. So we were, we were talking, kind of catching up on the past several years, and he was asking me about a decision that he knew I had faced a couple years ago. Uh, it was an opportunity for me to, to grow personally and professionally. It's something that was going to really, really stretch me, but also something that would have been a pretty big burden on my schedule and would have been a big burden on my family life. So he was asking me uh, what I decided, and I, I told my friend that I decided I declined. I turned that decision down. I declined that opportunity. He asked me, he said, oh, was that a tough decision for you to make? And I said, oh, no, I don't even think I prayed about it. So I said that, as soon as those words were out of my mouth, I thought, I, I, I can't believe what I just said. I, I, um, I'm, I'm actually saying, I'm actually bragging in this instance about not praying. How arrogant of me. So easy, I didn't even need to consult God. This decision, no problem. And so I was actually boasting about how I made a decision and didn't even need to ask God about it. And the Bible, the Bible has actually a very specific word to describe this type of arrogance. And that word is stupid. <laughs> Let's take a look. Jeremiah 10:21. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. So this is talking about leaders. It's talking about leaders of God's people. And what it says is that they have not prospered and their flock the people that are, that's under their charge, those that they're supposed to be caring for, they're scattered. They're suffering as a result um, of what the leaders have done. And the reason is that the leaders, they did not find it necessary to inquire of the Lord, as it says. Arrogantly, they figured out their own methods of decision-making. And those methods of decision-making, well, they just didn't involve God. They didn't need God to make their decisions. And so, for us... If prayerlessness is a strong pattern in our decision-making, well, we shouldn't be surprised if we experience very similar results to what we read about here. Over time, if we're prayerless in our decision-making, our decisions are going to lead to pain and not prosperity. And if we have leadership, as in this situation over here, then what we're going to find is that those that we're leading, those that we're supposed to be caring for, they're going to have a share in that pain. We can't make decisions that result in pain for us, and don't result in pain for the people that we're leading that God has charged us with caring for. And so, this is what we can expect if we don't pray. But what if we do pray? What if we do pray? What if we do seek God? What should we expect then? Well, James chapter 1, it speaks to this. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, 
and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this is telling us if we ask, God promises wisdom. But there are at least two attitudes that are attached to this promise. The first one of those attitudes is humility. It starts off saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, the arrogant, they don't consult God. In their eyes, they don't lack wisdom. This is me. Think of, think of me in that situation with my friend. I was arrogant in that situation because I didn't think that I lacked wisdom. I thought, I have all the wisdom that I need in order to make this decision, this complex decision. I'm able to do this without consulting God. So this is actually me in that situation. The arrogant, they don't think they lack wisdom, but the humble, they recognize that they have a wisdom deficit. And so they ask. They seek God's wisdom. They know that they lack it, and they ask. So you have humility, and then you also have faith. Faith is the other attitude. It says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. So this person, this person of faith, they, they not only believe that God will provide the wisdom that they're asking for, but they also trust God enough to decide in advance that when God does provide that wisdom, they're going to follow it. They're going to follow the wisdom that God provides. This is something we talked about last week. We talked about having, uh, get working toward a point of having a neutral heart or having a heart that's submissive to God's will. So this person of faith, they've decided when God provides wisdom, I'm going to submit myself to that wisdom. And this stands in contrast to the other person we read about in this passage, the double-minded person. This person, they may ask God for wisdom, but they're really unwilling to apply that wisdom when it comes. Or at best, they're undecided. They haven't decided yet if they're going to apply that wisdom or not if God provides it. But when we humble ourselves, we ask God for wisdom, resolve to actually act on the wisdom that he provides, God promises us he's going to provide that wisdom. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and will be given him. I really, I love the word generously here. I'm so glad that's included in this passage. It reminds me that, that God's not stingy with his wisdom. I've got a decision to make. I can go to God knowing he's not some miser who's hoarding his wisdom for himself. He's actually a lot more like me at In-N-Out with my kids. He loves to give good gifts. He loves to be generous to his children. That's the God that we follow. Now, in my experience, the most common way that God delivers this wisdom is through the next car, through the coal car, which is the word of God, the Bible. Now, seeking God's will without searching God's word, it's like trying to run a train with no fuel. This is literally a non-starter that we're talking about here. And I have a few friends that I, I really appreciate because one of the things that, that they're really good at is they're good at asking the question, what does the Bible have to say about that? An issue comes up, and I'm not thinking about what the Bible says about anything. An issue comes up, and they just ask the question very naturally, well, what does the Bible have to say about that? What does God's word have to say in this situation? Whenever someone does this, I'm so grateful because it reminds me, oh yeah, God has actually spoken. God's spoken, and his words are a resource available to me. I don't need to just blindly grope about in the dark looking for truth. Truth is bound, and it's printed, and it's actually sitting right there on my bookshelf available to me. 
And the Bible, the Bible makes very bold claims about itself. If you read it from beginning to end, you'll see all throughout these claims that it makes about itself. But there's this concentration of claims right there in the, in the very middle of the Bible. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119, it's in the middle of the Bible, and it's actually the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses. All of them, it's, this is poetry, all of these verses are about God's word. And so I'm not going to read to you all 176, don't worry. Um, but I do want to read a handful of them to you. And, and as I read them, just consider the implications of these claims that the Bible makes about itself, the implications that these have on our decision-making. So, Psalm 119, starting in 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Unfolding, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. It says, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. God's words are right. They're good. It says, your promise is well tried. It's proven itself out. God's words have proven themselves out in real life. They're right. They're tried, well tried, and your servant loves it. It says, your testimonies are righteous forever. They give understanding that I might live. It says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. It doesn't change. So if you believe these claims about God's word, then clearly God's word, it's an irreplaceable, and it's an indispensable part of making a great decision. If you're not sure if these claims are true or not, then it's worth looking into and finding out if they actually are. But if we are sold, if we're sold on the importance of consulting God's word, the next natural question is, well, how? How do we go about doing that? How do we practically consult God's word? Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the most foundational element when it comes to this, and that is having a daily time reading God's word. That's the most foundational element of consulting God's word. And so for me, this means that I try to wake up before my kids. That's step one. I get coffee. That's step two. And I sit down with my Bible open, and I read maybe not a ton, maybe one chapter, maybe two. Before I read, I usually ask God. I ask God to help me understand what I'm reading. There's actually a verse out of Psalm 119 that I pray, not every morning, but, but I'd say most mornings when I do this. It's, it says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I just sit down and I ask God to help me because I know that on my own, I'm going to struggle to actually understand the truth that I'm reading. So I ask him to help me. I ask him to help me see those things out of his word. And over time, what this has done is it's helped me grow familiar with God's word. And so now when a decision comes on my plate, very often, I know some scriptures that are actually speaking to that decision, that are relevant to that decision. Or, at a very minimum, I often know a place where I can go to at least start looking and start that search for scriptures that speak to this situation that I'm in. There are other times, though, where I really have no idea what God's Word says about a situation that I'm facing. I can't think of a single verse. I can't think of a single place to, to go to look for a verse that speaks to the situation that I'm dealing with. And in these situations, it's really easy to just give up and kind of bypass this step in the decision-making process. Just easy to give up. But this is actually a very lazy approach to do this. Now, if I, if I lock my keys in my car, I don't just say, oh, well, rats. Guess I won't be driving that car anymore. No, if I lock my keys in my car, I'm doing whatever it takes to get those keys out of the car. I'm calling my wife for a spare set of keys. I'm getting a coat hanger and contorting it into some weird 
shape to try to get that car open. If nothing else, I'm calling a locksmith. One way or another, I'm going to get my keys back. I'm going to get back in that car. And the same way, if we're serious about making a great decision, what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what the Bible has to say about a topic. One way or another, we're going to figure out what the Bible says. There are, tons, there are tons of Bible resources out there that a motivated person can find and put into use. But I'll say that the most proven resource that I've found, in my experience over time, is to look to the passenger car. Look to the passenger car on this. The passenger car, this is counsel. This is where we bring others on board, where we invite them to help us in our search for God's will. Outside of my daily time, in the Bible, reading God's word, the best way I've found to locate truth from God's word for these decisions is to ask people who have a track record of following God. They have a track record of taking his word and applying it in their life. When I go to them, that's the biggest help for me in finding out what God's word says. Usually, I walk away not only with relevant scripture that speaks to the situation, but I walk away with categories that are a part of this decision that I now know I can consider that, that nowhere, were nowhere on my radar before I went and sought input from others. And the Bible itself, it speaks to the crucial importance of seeking counsel in making a decision. Proverbs 15.22 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And then Proverbs 19.20 says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. <clears throat> but we need to recognize that not all advice is created equal. There's some better advice and some not so good advice. It actually matters who we have on our passenger car. This is not just an all aboard kind of situation. And the Bible actually tells us the types of people that we want to go to and seek counsel from. One of those is leaders and those who are farther down the path than you are. So is someone, is someone a leader? Is someone, uh, does someone have a leadership position over you? Or is this someone who's, who's farther down the path of life where you can actually look to their life and you can see some outcomes of them walking with God? Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, these people who are familiar with the, God of wor with the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So, if it's a decision related to raising kids, well, who do you know who has adult children who are walking with God? Those would be great people to invite to hop on your train and help with this decision. Is it a financial decision? Well, who has a pattern of honoring God with their money? That's the person you want to invite to be on your train. Others to look for counsel from are friends who have a history of telling you hard things, things that are difficult for you to hear. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So if they've never told you something that was difficult to hear, you probably want to put a little asterisk next to their counsel. Take that with a grain of salt. Yes men and flatterers, these aren't the people that you want to invite to be on your train. But if someone is willing to tell you hard things, and if that same person is willing to receive hard things, they're not only able to give correction, but you've seen in their life they have a pattern of receiving correction and putting into practice from others. Those are the people that you really want to listen to. When they say something, you want to perk your ears up and listen to the advice that they have. Now, ultimately, we need to recognize that, that we're the ones who need to make the decision. Seeking counsel, it's different from outsourcing 
a decision. So that's not what we're talking. We're not talking about outsourcing our decisions when we're talking about this passenger car. You're the one who's going to be held accountable for the decisions that you make. God will hold you accountable for your decisions, not someone else. And so it's important that you're the one to actually make the decisions. But while you're the one who has to make the final call, you still want to take care not to decide before you ask. Don't make up your mind before you seek input. In the past, I've tried to do this. I've tried to fortify my own position, get it all sound and rock solid, get it, get it fortified, and then, only after that, go seek advice. And what I'm doing is I'm really seeking advice that lines up, that agrees with what I've already decided. So remember, you're not seeking input on a, deci- you're seeking input on a decision that has yet to be made. You're not seeking a stamp of approval for a decision that has already been made. And this can be really challenging. This can be especially challenging if you're really excited about something, you've got a great plan, you've got an idea, you go, you seek input like you know to do, you go seek that input, and then the input, when it comes, it's just like pouring cold water over all of your plans. That can be really discouraging, and it can really test your resolve to going about this decision-making process when you get advice that you're just really not happy with. But when this happens, what we need to do don't take it personally. Don't get mad. Instead, faithfully consider the counsel that you received, pray over it, and then continue on with that decision-making process, knowing that ultimately you're the one who has to make that final call. The next step in the process, this is the freight car. This is circumstances. We're talking about circumstances. These consist of things like our time, like, res- like timing or, or resources or lack of resources or opportunities, or lack of opportunities. That's what we're talking about when we say circumstances. And they go in the freight car because the freight car can either be empty or it can be full. You've seen trains as you're driving down the highway. Sometimes the freight cars, they're full. Sometimes you can tell, oh, they're clearly empty. So they can be full or they can be empty. A lack of favorable circumstances doesn't mean that God is saying no. And on the same side, on the other side of things, If all the circumstances line up, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is saying yes. Sometimes God is going to use circumstances to answer our prayers. Other times, he's going to use circumstances to serve as a test. He's going to see, are we willing to do what he's already indicated that we should do? In the Old Testament, there's a great example of this. Uh, What's going on is you have Saul, who's the king of Israel, and then you have David, and Saul is very jealous of David. He's threatened by David, and so he wants to eliminate David. So he's chasing him, literally trying to kill him. So David's fleeing. He's got this small band of men with him, and they're running from Saul, and, and, and they're running for their life. And so they're spending just all this time going from one place to other, constantly on the move, and they find themselves hiding in this cave in the wilderness. Well, Saul's nearby, and Saul, we're told that he goes into the cave to relieve himself. So you can imagine he's in a very vulnerable position here with David and his men in the back of this cave while he's gone in to relieve himself. And so David's men, they read these circumstances, and here's how they advise David. They say this. I imagine this taking place in hushed tones because Saul's right there and they're in the back of the cave. The men said, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So, in other words, what they're saying is, you've been faithful, God has seen that you've been faithful, and he's seen your suffering. What he's done is he's served your enemy up to you on a silver platter. 
go ahead, run your sword through him, and just be done with it. Here's how David responds to that advice. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave, and he went on his way. So David here in this situation, he was clear on God's will. He was clear on what God had already said. He didn't let the circumstances, astounding as these circumstances were, he didn't let them make the decision for him. While others, they saw this no-brainer opportunity, David correctly perceived a test, and he actually passed that test. So what does this mean for us? What's the implications for us? Well, let's say that you're in a situation where you're dissatisfied with your job. You're just kind of unhappy at work. And so you pray and you ask God to provide you with a new job. Next day, the phone rings, someone's calling, and they're offering you a new job with more money. Well, that's great. Is that a sign that you should take that new job? Maybe, maybe it is. Also, maybe not. It's time to start that decision-making process. It's time to ask a lot more questions. It's time to do due diligence uncover other circumstances that might be at play. It's time to pray, to seek God's word, and to seek counsel. Now, if things check out, you might be able to look back and you can thank God. Thank you, God, for sending me those circumstances. Thank you for providing this job. Thank you for making it clear and using those circumstances to make a part of that. However, if as you're doing that due diligence, running that process, it turns out that God's actually directing you to stay where you're at, well, now you've passed the test. You didn't jump the gun he passed the test. The lazy way in this situation would just be to let the circumstances decide for you. We could call this lazy way the Alice in Wonderland method of decision-making. Earlier this year, I read the book Alice in Wonderland. It's kind of weird. Um, As I read it, I realized Alice, she kind of has this approach to decision-making. This is her approach. Whenever a door is open, she goes through it. Door opens, she goes through that door. Doors closed, she doesn't go through that door. And you know what? It works out okay for her because this is a children's book. But when we, take a, when we adopt this approach, we take this Alice in Wonderland approach to our decision-making, navigating life's choices, what we find is that we actually end up making a lot of naive decisions, just basing our decisions on what the circumstances are, what doors are open, what doors are closed. A more di- a diligent approach, A more diligent approach would be this to treat the circumstances in our lives as pieces of data that are crucial parts of a wise decision-making process. Don't treat them as the final answer or a signal to cut that decision-making process short. We're on to the caboose. This is emotions, the last one in the, car, uh, in the train. Now, cabooses, they became a thing in the 1830s. Originally, they served kind of like this all-purpose home and office for conductors. They live in there, they do their work in there, file all their paperwork in there. It was kind of their, their little home on the road is what it was. Now in 1863, at the top of the caboose, that the cupola was added. It's that part that kind of sticks up, extends above there with the windows at the top. And that was added as a safe way for the conductor of the train to be able to look back inspect the train, and look for smoke or, or any other problems. It functioned kind of like a miniature little watchtower for the train. 
where problems could be identified, where they could be evaluated from, and then addressed as they were needed. So in a similar way, our emotions, they function kind of like this lookout tower for our decision-making. They help us identify when something is off, something's off here, or when something needs looking into. Now, I mentioned last week, my dad, he's, a, he's one of my, my top go-to guys for help with my decision-making. And when I was making the decision to marry uh, my now wife, I, of course, I went to my dad and sought his input and counsel. And one of the first questions that he asked me, he asked me, well, how do you feel about her? How do you feel about Andrea? He asked me, are you attracted to her physically, emotionally? Are you attracted to her? And I always appreciated that he, he, he not only included that in his questions, he, he led with that as a question. I thought that that actually showed a lot of wisdom. What he's doing is he's acknowledging that my feelings are actually a very important part of this decision to get married or not. That's a big deal. If my answer to that question had been, meh, oh, that would be a very bad note to start a marriage off on. <laughs> and my dad knew that. He knew that my feelings were actually important. If I had been meh, well, that would have been a sign. That would have been a red flag that was worth looking into and understanding what was going on in that situation. So similarly, feelings like fear, doubt, guilt, these feelings, they can be really helpful for drawing our, import, our attention to important factors that we might otherwise just overlook. Feelings have a really important role to play. There's a great example of this in the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians, and he's kind of telling about his travel plans and changes to his travel plans. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. So what's going on here? We have Paul. Paul has plans, travel plans. These are seemingly good plans that he has. The circumstances, interestingly, even line up. It says, a door was open for me. So the circumstances are favorable in this situation, but something was off. Something wasn't right. He said, my spirit was not at rest. His feelings, his emotions were telling him something. And why? Why were they not at rest? Well, it pointed back to the fact that Titus wasn't there. And we don't have all the details about this. We don't know exactly what it was about Titus's absence that, 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 made, that was such a big deal that changed his mind, but apparently this was a weighty factor. Titus's absence combined with a lack of a peace in Paul, that was enough to result in a different decision than Paul would have otherwise made. And so emotions, they do have this important role to play. However, we need to realize that a dominant pattern for decision-making today is to let the caboose drive the train. And this happens when we start with a strong feeling. That's our starting point. And then we don't question that feeling. And then we organize everything else under the assumption that that feeling or those feelings are correct, that they're true, and that they're wise. Now, can you see how someone might get into, tr into trouble with this approach? It's kind of obvious, isn't it? The absurdity here, it's, it's easy to spot. That is until we actually really want something. When we really want something, it's a lot harder to see the absurdity of this approach. When we want something, we begin to say things like, you know, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. I feel like this is the right thing to do. Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you ever said it yourself? I know I have. I've said it. Or we say things like, you know what, I just don't have a peace about it. 
I just don't have a piece about it. If we want something, these phrases, they can provide great cover for thinking with our caboose. Obi-Wan Kenobi famously gave this advice. He said, Luke, trust your feelings. And it worked out okay for Luke. But when we take a trust your feelings approach, what we're really saying is, I feel this way, case closed. I feel this way, case closed. A wise approach would be to replace Luke, trust your feelings, not with Luke, disregard your feelings. That's not the approach we want to take. But instead, with Luke, evaluate your feelings. Evaluate your feelings. I feel this way. Why? Why do I feel this way? What do my feelings tell me about this decision that I need to factor in? So we evaluate our feelings, we factor them into our decision, but we do so realizing that God often leads us to do things that we just don't feel great about. So don't expect to walk through the decades of life without God asking you and leading you to do some things that you would rather not do. Now, often we go through this decision-making process. One of the things that we find is that something that we thought was a complex decision, uh, kind, of a, kind of a gray area in God's mind. Well, it turns out to be pretty black and white. As we get counsel, as we read God's word, we find out, you know what? God's word has clearly spoken to this. Now I just need to obey. This is actually a simple moral decision. Other times we go through this train and we discover that God has a very specific plan for us and he's guiding us in a clear way to that plan. Other times we go through it and we find out that God has given us a lot of leeway. This is a decision where, you know what? We've got some leeway and, and we, can make, we can make one of multiple calls. But wherever we land, there's still one final step. And this is not on your outline. This is bonus material here. One final step in the decision-making train process. And that final step is go. We've got to go. We've got to make that decision. You don't want to get caught in analysis paralysis and don't expect a great decision to mean a risk-free decision. Recognize that there's still going to be bumps. Even for a great decision, there's still going to be bumps, there's going to be setbacks, there's going to be challenges along the way. And when we come to those, we need to not blame others. Remember, you're the one who's made the decision. Don't blame others. Own the decision that you made and continue to check in with God as you move forward. When I was, uh, when I was 19 years old, I took a train from Portland, Maine to Sacramento. It was, uh, it was awesome. It was a great experience, guys. You could just see the, see the country going by slowly. I really, I really enjoyed it. But it took four days, four days to get from Maine to Sacramento. So there's a reason that people don't use trains a lot anymore. Who has time for that? The same, the same distance could be covered in, what, like six hours, a six-hour flight from Maine to Sacramento. So there's a reason people don't use trains very much anymore. And it's the same reason that we rarely see people using this decision-making process. It just, it takes time. It's not fast. It's a lot easier to just fire off a decision. But when we take time to uncover God's will, what we're doing is we're really setting ourselves up to make this great decision. Let's pray. God, we recognize that without you, we can't make great decisions. And so um, we ask that as we apply these things from your word, God, as, as, as we pray, as, as we seek your word, as we seek input from others, and then and we, 
we look for direction out of, out of circumstances and, and our emotions, God. God, I, I pray that you would guide throughout all of that. If you're not guiding, we're stuck. And so, um, so God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful with our part and, uh, and trust you and see that you actually show up and point us along the way. We want to follow your ways because as we saw in one, Psalm 119, we agree with it. We believe that your ways are good, that they're the best, that they're, that they're right. And so, God, we, uh, we, we, want, we want to follow in your ways. We want to receive guidance from you. And, um, and we thank you in advance for your provision of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.